Today's episode of the Ministry Minded Podcast is proud to be partnered with Anchor Podcasts. Anchor is the easiest way for anyone to make a podcast. If you have a latent idea that's just kind of lying around for a show you would like to record one day, I'm confident that anyone could use this platform to host, record, and distribute your podcast, turning your idea into a reality. Anchor puts everything you need to be successful all in one place. You can start a new recording right from your mobile device. They also have convenient creation tools that allow you to edit your audio files so they sound crisp and great. Anchor also distributes your podcast for you, letting listeners find your show almost everywhere, including Spotify, Anchor Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and several others. And best of all, it's free. There are no hosting fees or monthly subscriptions or minimum listener counts, just an easy-to-use platform to get your podcast out there at no cost to you. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm today to get started. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ministry Minded Podcast, a show that seeks to marvel at the mercy of God that meets us in our messy ministries. I'm, of course, your host, Pastor Brad Gray. I serve as the senior pastor of Stonington Baptist Church right here in Paxinos, Pennsylvania. I am so uh, glad to be able to carve out a little space this week and be able to uh, chat with you to think through some things that I have been uh, thinking on myself and just to kind of reflect on some uh, different things that I want to bring up and uh, hopefully they will benefit you. Hopefully hopefully, uh, you'll find some encouragement and some blessing in them as I sort of think out loud about them. Uh, last week I was unable to uh, get an episode out to you. And, you know, that's just the way things are sometimes. <laughs> I spent Monday and Tuesday of last week, so the 25th and 26th of January, uh, hanging out with some pastors in central Pennsylvania. Uh, pastors from all over the area, really, in this uh, sort of central Pennsylvania valley. Um, from as far south as like Harrisburg area, from as far north as like Wellsboro, I think. Uh, I'm sure there's some other guys there that were from different areas. <laughs> uh, but this was for the Gospel Coalition, Central Pennsylvania Regional Chapter, our annual sort of retreat for uh, rural pastors. And it was so great to be there, uh, so great to be a part of that. We got to hear from Pastor Garrett Kell of Delray Baptist Church in Virginia, and uh, I was so glad to be able to meet him, uh, hear from him, hear some encouraging words and encouraging words for pastors. Um, and I think that that's one of the things that stuck out to me from those couple days is just that pastors needs pastors need the gospel too. <laughs> that's a, such a that's a rudimentary thing to say. That's a elementary thing to say that you're like, well, no duh. Well, sometimes I think that there's this level of um, thought out there. Maybe is the right way to say it that that pastors have somehow mastered. Uh, the gospel, and I can here to I'm here to tell you that <laughs> that is definitely not true. Uh, we need the gospel uh, just as much, perhaps if not more. Uh, I'm not. I don't mean to make <laughs> this a sort of a ranking of who needs the gospel more than other people, but uh, pastors definitely need it. Uh, need encouragement. Need uh, refreshment, and uh, that's what this time was. Uh, and I was so glad to be able to be there with them, with these uh, brothers, really. And that's what I have been really encouraged by. 
very many of these uh, men, I can call my brothers, my friends, and I can also just call each and every one of them brothers in arms in, in, in what we're trying to do uh, for the kingdom of God. Um, it's been a, such a refreshing thing to uh, be ministering in, t- in this area only because I very much feel that there's no... Um, there's no sort of like competitive nature. Uh, at least it hasn't been brought to my attention that that is so in terms of like pastors competing with other pastors to enlarge their church. Um, I won't say that that's always the case uh, wherever you go, but with very many of these brothers that I was with this weekend or this this past week, I should say. Um, I could definitely say that that's true. Um, we are there to serve the church, uh, serve the church of central Pennsylvania, which is uh, just a small sliver of the church of God, uh, the part of the small sliver of the kingdom of God. And all that we do is for his sake, for his glory. And, and, uh, I think that that was really true during those days, just as we were able to be together and be vulnerable together, be uh, encouraged and uplifted together. And um, that's such a great thing. What a wonderful, what a wonderful thing that pastors can share, uh, share their hearts, share their struggles, share their weaknesses, share uh, their discouragements, and be encouraged with one another in the hope that only God can give. And uh, so that's what it's about. Uh, If uh, you're a pastor in this area and you haven't been connected with this group, uh, definitely, definitely do that. I'll put a link in the notes for the show, uh, to the central Pennsylvania regional chapter of the gospel coalition. And, uh, I think you'll be encouraged by it. Uh, and if, if you're not, you can be encouraged by some of the, the fruits of our labor, so to speak. So, uh, there's lots of, uh, fun things in store, exciting things in store for that group, that sort of conglomerate of, of brothers. And so I hope that you can, uh, be praying for us, praying for us as we minister, as we uh, seek to serve and and uh, to spend and be spent for the glory of glory of Christ alone, so to speak. So, uh, anyways, that's a long way to say that I wasn't able to get an episode out to you, uh, but I'm happy to uh, be back in t- uh, in your ear holes this week, <laughs> uh, thinking through some things. And I want to jump right in. Uh, I have a couple of sermons that I kind of want to reflect a little bit more on, and and then I have a couple of articles that I want to go through that I think are really just super profound uh, and very poignant for, I think, what we need to hear in in this uh, current climate, this current day and age, where we are right now, I think these articles are just perfect for where we are. So, um, what did I preach on? Well, uh, so two weeks ago would be the 24th of January, and I was so happy to be uh, bringing a message from 1 Samuel chapter 3. Uh, I had never preached on this message before, and even when I was uh, studying for it, I just remember thinking about this particular chapter only in terms of only in terms of you know Sunday school class with flannel graphs and hearing about Samuel's call. <laughs> so First Samuel three is of course the passage in which God calls Samuel into the ministry, uh, specifically into the prophetic ministry of being his voice, which is a really significant moment in the history of Israel for several reasons, which I tried to describe. Um, and that's really what I really focused on at the beginning of the sermon is is bringing a very um, clear historical context to this moment and just how significant it was. Uh, the fact that 
not only was God's like, there's a marvelous fact in this chapter that I never even really thought of before uh, until I studied it, which is the fact that Jesus is there standing in front of Samuel, calling him by name. It says in verse 10 of that chapter that the Lord came and stood. There's this physical presence of the Lord in that moment, which if you've read the Old Testament or if you've studied this out in any sort of way, this is what we would call either a Christophany or theophany, but the bodily presence of God is the second person of the Trinity, the Son, Jesus Christ. And this is who who is there calling on Samuel uh, to hearken unto his voice and who is there going to... And actually, I love at the end of the chapter too, it says that he appeared unto him again and there sort of explained uh, the hope of the word and the sort of the, the main message that would become Samuel's message, which brings Israel to repentance. Um, so we have that fact. Uh, the fact that the Lord came and stood and called Samuel by name. Uh, but of course, uh, one of the more profound things that's going on, if I can say that, um, historically, uh, theologically, it's very, <laughs> it's very profound that, that God would come and speak to this young boy who's ministering in the, in the, the temple at Shiloh, or the, the tabernacle at Shiloh. But from a historical point, the the profound prof, profundity uh, of the historicity of this passage comes from the fact that this moment when God is calling on Samuel, it comes after decades, uh, a, a generation or so of silence uh, from God. Um, and that's really what is, makes this such a profound moment. Uh, that God is finally speaking again. Um, actually, let me turn to that passage because that's what's indicated by the very first verse of the chapter, uh, which is not often, I think, recognized. So, 1 Samuel 3, if I can turn this page, <laughs> 1 Samuel 3, 1, And the child ministered unto the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was precious in those days. There was no open vision. Precious uh, actually is a bad translation by the King James there. It should read like rare, uh, uncommon. It was an infrequent thing uh, that, that the, the, the God's people would hear God's word, which if you can believe that at all, which I think we can. And <laughs> no wonder that Israel was in such a dire state. Uh, just a couple of pages back, you have at the end of Judges, I think the saddest verse, one of the saddest verses in all the Bible, uh, Genesis, or Judges, excuse me, twenty one twenty five, which says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. You have this almost spiritual anarchy. You have this uh, horrible sort of political division, this economical deficiency that, that, that Israel was enduring, which sounds very much like our own day, a state of affairs in the church of, of America right now. Uh, all of these things that are uh, leading us to believe that we are leaderless, we are kind of lost, we have no sort of sort of spiritual or gospel unity to uh, sort of describe us. And in the midst of all of that, in Israel's day, that's when when God decides to, to speak. He decides to speak through, no less, a boy, a young boy who is ministering in the tabernacle uh, to Eli. And so he calls uh, Samuel to be his prophet, to be his voice, and um, and Samuel surrenders, sur surrenders to this call, which is such a seminal moment, uh, not just in Samuel's life, but in the life of God's people. 
God is speaking again. God is moving again. God is, is working again. Like, this is a moment that is truly remarkable and astounding and is filled with grace that, that God would, would desire to speak through his people again for the, his people's good. Um, and that's really what I strove to, to draw out in that sermon is just the fact that this is a moment that we need to rightly celebrate, but also it's a moment that we ought to rightly learn from too. Um, because what has led up to this moment is the fact that God's word has been largely ignored, relegated into almost oblivion, into sort of a tired tradition in which it has no bearing on God's people's sort of present everyday lives. Um, and I think that that's true for us even now. Um, as a, a church at large, um, God's word, I don't th- always think has a lot of bearing on our everyday lives. It's something that exists out there. That's something that's present for us when it's convenient, but it's not sort of a driving force in our everyday lives. And I would say that we are, uh, sort of playing a game of chicken if we think that we can survive, uh, without the word of God. If we think that not just as a church, or excuse me, not just as a nation, but as a church, um, if we think that we can survive without a dependency on the word of God, um, we're playing a game of chicken that we're ultimately going to lose because it's just going to result in chaos, confusion. You can already see that we've already felt the effects of that in the last let's say, 14 months. Um, well, <laughs> I should say, we felt that for our ages uh, as a human people. Uh, but I would say <laughs> most clearly in our own lifetimes, we felt that in the last 14 or so months with all of the rampant division that's just being brought to the fore. Uh, we th- Those are the effects of God's words being ignored. Those are the effects of God's word being precious, <laughs> being rare, being uh, an unfamiliar thing that has no sort of bearing on everyday life. You won't have people surrendering. See, that's what makes Samuel's surrender to God such a remarkable thing, is that in the midst of all of this this noise of, of untruth, and not just untruth, but scandal and strife, just read about Eli's sons, these so-called ministers of the word and priests of God in the same tabernacle where Samuel was himself ministering, and read about them and, and their character. <laughs> they were less than stellar. They were sinners to the core, as we all are, but they were scandalizing the truth of God and revealing their irregard for the truth of God by how they lived. And yet, in the midst of all of that, Samuel surrenders to God um, and becomes God's voice. And not just God's voice, uh, but God's voice of hope and repentance and forgiveness uh, I, I think so often what is missed in the Old Testament is the fact that there's this God of of vengeance, but behind the God of vengeance is a God of patience. And he is evidencing that here uh, through this call of Samuel. Um, I, I was really moved by this sermon only because it's a it's it's a spot in history that I think deserves a lot more um 
investigation, um, and not just investigation, but study, especially its ramifications for us um, as a people in <laughs> in 21st century, in 2021. What is what is the benefit of reading a book like uh, reading a chapter like this and reading a book like First Samuel for us now? Well, a lot because it reveals sort of what happens when God is relegated to oblivion and sort of wh- who God can use uh, to speak hope and grace in the midst of that oblivion. And it's unsuspecting people, uh, just like Samuel, uh, unsuspecting people, just like pick anyone else in the Old Testament. (laughs) It's an unexpected person given an an unsuspecting message to people who are undeserving. Uh, That's essentially the Old Testament. Uh, That's God's patience being sort of borne out um, for God's people, for God's glory. So uh, that was... My Sunday morning sermon, 1 Samuel 3, I entitled it, Here Am I. I, I, I challenge you to go listen to it. I, I am really thankful that God allowed me to deliver that message. And oh, this is a good segue because <clears throat> uh, this past weekend, the 31st, was sort of a similar message. And I say that only because it dealt with truth, God's word, and what we can rely on. Um, so I preached on uh, this past Sunday on Psalm 62, a 12-verse psalm, and I found it to be one of the most moving psalms I have read in a long while. Uh, It has a really particular refrain talking about God as a rock. Let me get there, and I can just read it to you, um, at least the first couple verses, because it is so, um, it's sort of catchy, uh, what he's what he's saying here in the psalm, and it's also really significant too. So Psalm sixty two: Truly, my soul waiteth upon God, and cometh, or excuse me, from Him cometh my salvation. He only is my rock and and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. So he calls God his rock, uh, and he calls him his defense and salvation. He repeats this refrain in verses 5 and 6. Everywhere he's talking about God as a rock, defense, salvation, refuge, all those sorts of things. And what I strove to bring into context here is just the, of what perhaps might be going on in David's own life um, when he's writing these words. So... Um, much like anything, you have to sort of extrapolate. We're not given an exact sort of spirit, Holy Spirit-inspired footnote that says this is written in this certain instance, <laughs> and that's okay. The King James Bible that I preach out of specifically mentions sometimes certain events in which these psalms could be closely relegated. You know, that is not inspired either, per se. Uh, those are also extrapolations that have been found to be tradition. But I also think it's rightly so that that other scholars have determined that this is when this was written to at this certain time, at this juncture in David's life. And so taking it is taking what it is for what it is, <laughs> accepting it at face value. Um, but this particular psalm has no sort of detail like that. If you look at Psalm 59, my Bible has a little note, Psalm 56, Psalm 57. There's all these different psalms of David that have a specific moment tied to them. This one doesn't. But just sort of extrapolating from verse 4, he's talking about 
in verse, well, verse three and four, talking about these that want to cast him down through, as he says, their imagined mischief, and they they want to bring him down. They're outwardly blessing him. They're inwardly cursing him. And it reminded me, in fact, of a time when David was feeling that uh, to the nth degree, we might say, uh, which is, I think that this psalm was written during Absalom's rebellion. Um, if you remember uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, actually at the end of the year, at the end of 2020, I preached out of Psalm 3, which is a psalm that's tied to Absalom's rebellion, the third psalm. And I think this one is too, only in, 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 in I, so I won't go over all the details because I think I did that last time, but I was so, it, it was so interesting as I was actually re, making these connections and restudying 2 Samuel 15, which details Absalom's rebellion. It was really apparent to me that this is what's going on, precisely because the fact that Absalom is sitting at the gate of David's kingdom, and this is what's recorded in verses 2 through 4 of Second Samuel 15, and he's literally sitting there spreading fake news about the justice that people would receive from the ministry, from the sort of throne of David. Uh, he positions himself and he's jockeying for position and he steals the hearts, as it says there in that chapter, of those under David's rule by spreading fake news, <laughs> which is a really significant thing because it's so so predominant in our own day, this concept of fake news, this concept of, 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 of sort of uh, proposing something that's not true, but pretending that it is. And not only that, but, but, but having people accept it as truth. Um, and this is what leads David to, I think, confess this psalm. Uh, because what is he confessing? He's confessing that in the midst of all of this noise, and you see, let me, let me back up. Because this is where we get to this wonderful sort of juxtaposition here. So David is here, he confesses, truly my soul waiteth upon God, from him cometh my salvation. And then he says, declares in verse 3, how long will ye imagine mischief against a man? You see, we, we don't get this here in the English translation, but what happens here is he's saying, truly my soul waiteth. Waiteth is a word that means stillness or silence. So you could say, God alone, you are my stillness, we could say. And then imagined mischief, that mischief is a word which means shouting or noisy assaults. So you have here this beautiful juxtaposition that in the midst of all of this imagined noise, in the midst of all this fake news, where is David going for repose? Where is David going for rest? Where is David going for silence? The rock of God's truth. This, this to me is why I think this psalm is one of the most poignant, at least for me right now, is I, I, I can, I have to confess to you, there's been so many, I, I confess this to my church. If you're, uh, if you're a tender of Stoning and Baptist or a member and you're listening to this right now, you'll, you'll remember this or hope, hopefully you do. Um, I, I, I confess the, to that very fact. 
that I myself have been given over to what David is here confessing, that I feel as though I'm about to crack. And what do I do? I have to, not not that I have to, but I am uh, given the grace to rely on a rock, a solid rock, whose truth is solid to the core, solid all the way through, who will not be moved. And so long as my, my feet are planted by faith on this rock, uh, this rock who is not shaken, neither will I be shaken, neither will I be moved. Why? Because he says, in God is my salvation and my glory, the rock of my strength, and my refuge is in God. All around David is a storm of falsehood, a maelstrom of chaos, I said in the sermon. And what is he resting on? What is he trusting in? A rock of truth. And that rock is none other than Christ himself, the promises of the gospel, the preservation, the protection, and the power of God are all here on display for David to confess that, yes, no matter what else is is cracking and fraying and all the fringes of our life may be being called into question, we may be at the end of our rope, but as my, my, one of my good friend Tolian Chavidjian used to say, that God's office is at the end of our rope. <laughs> That's where he is. That's where he's positioned himself. He's at the end of our rope. When we come to know other, uh, other hope, that's where our true hope has established himself. This is what I think David is here saying, that This is a storm of falsehood, but he has a rock of truth to rely on, a rock of truth that preserves and protects and exercises his power for the good of his sons and daughters. This is what God does. Um, I challenge you to listen to that sermon. Uh, I got so much, but whenever I preach, I try to reiterate that, that I'm I'm not preaching as one who has figured this out. Actually, it's a cathartic experience for me, only because I need this news more than anyone else. As I said earlier, <laughs> I need this good news. I need to be reminded that I don't have anything solid except that I stand on the solid rock of Christ. Everything else is 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 transient, it's temporary, it's not eternal. Uh, it, it all, all of the ground is sinking sand, as the hymn says. Only Christ is, is solid and reliable and true and sturdy and stable. Uh, I need that message. And uh, I think a lot of other people do too. So I hope you'll be blessed um, by that. So uh, before we get to the rest of what I want to talk about, let me take a, a small uh, break to talk about this podcast's uh, presenting sponsor. Do you like coffee? I know that you do, and that's why I want to tell you about Fresh Roasted Coffee. Fresh Roasted is a locally owned and operated coffee house right here in central Pennsylvania that is committed to providing the highest quality coffee on earth. They do so by sourcing only the freshest coffee beans and by using the most eco-friendly roasting technology in the world. Fresh Roasted's USDA certified organic coffee beans ensure that your coffee is consistently regulated at each stage of the production process and completely free of GMOs and harmful synthetic substances. Fresh Roasted Coffee roasts their beans per order with immediate packaging and shipping directly to your door, meaning that you get to experience fresh coffee at its peak drinkability. That's what I like. 
I was introduced to fresh roasted coffee soon after moving to central Pennsylvania, and I'm so happy I was because I think it's literally the best coffee out there. Their Blackbeard's Revenge blend is out of this world good. Whether you use a regular drip coffee maker or a pour-over or a French press, however you get your coffee fix, make it fresh roasted. Go to the link in the notes for this show and use the offer code GRACE10 at checkout. That's offer code GRACE10 at checkout to get a discount on your next order. All right, uh, on to the rest of what I want to get to. Uh, First of all, in what I'm reading... Let me just grab this here. Um, I have it in front of me just because I wanted to talk about it really quick. I have – I'm going to write a book review about this, but I've been – as I've said earlier, I've been trying to discipline myself to only – read the books that I have <laughs> that I have been reading and to not try and read other new ones. That hasn't always worked out and that's okay. <laughs> um, I've confessed that already to you. But I recently finished one that I had been reading for a little bit and I finally just hunkered down and, and got through the rest of it. Um, and when I say got through, I really do mean I got through it. Um, and that book is David Murray's Reset, Living a Grace-Paced Life in a Burnout Culture. It's specifically a book for pastors who are perhaps feeling um, feeling burnt out or feeling as if they are on sort of the edge of that or perhaps they're in the middle of it, wherever you sort of are on the, on the burnout scale, if you want, want to use that uh, sort of terminology there. This book is, is presented as one that would be good for you to read. And I would have to um, hedge a little bit on that. Um, and I, I, it, it's interesting for me to – I don't often read books that I don't like. And maybe that's weird. Maybe I'm just choosing good books. <laughs> maybe I've just read – too many books in the same sort of vein. But it's really interesting because for a book that strives to be grace-paced, it sort of – not sort of. it. I think it really ends with a very law-driven sort of uh, terminology um, in the way that it sort of ends. Like the last half of the book I feel like is laden with not a lot of <laughs> – not a lot of grace given to pastors who are in difficult situations. Um, and I think it takes for granted sometimes certain situations that pastors can find themselves in. And I think one of them, <laughs> even just, maybe it's going to sound like I really don't like this book. <laughs> and I don't really mean that because uh, I found a lot of benefit from it. There's a lot, especially in the early chapters, that is very helpful, very insightful. He includes a lot of statistics, especially regarding stress and work-related uh, work-related stress and just different sort of data on all those sorts of things that really present um, uh, some good research. However, as I was closing the book and I was I was coming to the end of it, there is sort of this formulaic stance um, that is presented throughout the book um, in terms of this is how you can get over burnout. Almost as if there's this formula and it's so long as you plug in uh, certain things, you will get over it. There is sort of like this scientific approach here to how to get over a moment in, you know, ministerial life, personal life, emotional life, 
And I just don't know if that's true. Uh, and that's even coming from the whole premise around which this book is centered, which is there's this analogy of a pastor who is feeling burned out and, they, and, he, and he uses the illustration of a car going into a repair bay for to get fixed, to get fixed up. And even in that, I think there's sort of this, this view that so long as the right nuts and bolts are twisted or the right sort of liquids are put back in the car to use that analogy, that things will, will turn out right, that things will be okay. Um, and I just don't know if that's true. Um, I have to think of a lot about uh, a little bit more. Uh, I'm going to reflect more on this book only because of the last couple chapters, they just kind of left a bad taste in my mouth, if I'm being honest. Um, and I, I didn't feel the grace in them, um, especially for pastors who are feeling this way. I, I would say there's some practical things in here that are very well worth your time. Uh, there's some really good sort of... Uh, sort of theoretical writing. Some of the practical writing is good, but the last couple chapters just didn't sit well with me. So I have to think a little bit more about it. I'm going to write a full review of it soon. Um, but I just wanted to mention that because I had been reading it and it was so interesting just kind of how it ended for me. It just not ended how I wanted it to. So, um, another book that I'm about to finish that I'm reading on my iPad is Stephen Ting's Lectures on the Law and the Gospel. Um, that's a book I can highly recommend as sort of a law gospel preacher and law gospel theologian, or at least a striving one. Uh, I can definitely say that 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 particular book, Stephen King's series of lectures through the law and through the gospel has been so profound and so helpful and exactly what I have needed to hear uh, most often. Uh, so you can find the link. You can read it for free. Guess what? You can read good theology for free. Just do some digging. <laughs> do some digging on Google Books and you'll, you'll, you'll be surprised what you can find. Um, uh, but I've, I've put the Google link in there. Go, go read it and then go explore other books, either by Stephen Ting or others on Google Books. You can read them. You can download them in a PDF, pull them up on your iPad and read them. And it's really simple. That's what I do a lot. So uh, anyways, that's just a little nugget. So what's been helpful to me? Um, I know this podcast is going a little bit long, but I want to get through these things because I think they're so important. Um, and it, it, this ties, it will tie what I'm about. These two articles, let me just say, they tie back into Stephen Ting's lectures on the law and gospel, and you'll see that pretty pretty remarkably, I think. So what has been helpful to me this week, there's two articles that were written by two different guys on two different websites, <laughs> uh, but essentially saying the same sorts of things, which is, to me, just obviously something's going on there uh, through the Holy Spirit. Uh, and, and they both sort of revolve around the fact of the gospel, and the fact of the gospel is what needs to be proclaimed in the church and from the pulpit. So the first one comes from uh, a good friend, Bob Hiller, who I did a couple podcasts with a little bit ago. He's writing over on 1517 an article entitled Preaching That Gives Certainty. And so this obviously is clearly what he's talking about, the certainty of preaching and what we're called to preach. And so listen to what he writes. This is just a really moving paragraph. So he writes this, quote, what must be emphasized is that the preacher is not there to give a morality lecture with recommendations on how to face unprecedented situations. He is there to deliver a gift. End quote. Really quick for a second. How true is that? 
and how unlike most uh, most churchgoers assume that the church is there to give you morals, give you, uh, help you to become more virtuous. That's not always the case. We're there to deliver the good news of the unspeakable gift of Christ. That's the proclamation. And so, anyways, I'm digressing, but this is what Bob Hiller is getting to. So, uh, to re, uh, so going back to his quote, quote, he is there to deliver a gift. Sermons, Bob says, deliver Jesus as a gift from God. We must work hard to save the idea of preaching from the all too common caricature of a Sunday morning tongue lashing that harps on your failures. In the New Testament, preaching produces repentance and faith by delivering God's law and gospel, not shame, for the purposes of manipulating behavior. Faith comes through hearing the message of Christ, says St. Paul. Thus, the preacher has one job in these days of collective uncertainty. Listen, to fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. He is to stand, Bob continues, in the stead of Christ, by the command of Christ, that is because Jesus put him there, to herald the good news of Jesus Christ that is certain, the crucified one is Lord, and you are forgiven. End quote. I love those words, uh, only because <laughs> it speaks so truly to what we need in this moment, these unprecedented times, these this day and age in which not much is certain, not much is truth, not uh, true, not much is reliable. To go back to what we were talking about in Psalm 62, not much can we uh, plant our feet on. But you know what you can plant your feet on? Jesus Christ was made sin for you so that you could become his righteousness. And by faith, that is true for you. And that's what we proclaim. That's what we proclaim no matter what else gives way, no matter what else strives to get in the way. Pastors, protect your pulpit from quaint moral lessons that can make people feel good. Proclaim Christ crucified. Proclaim the forgiveness of sins. This is what I strive, strive uh, with all, all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength to be known for. Which leads me to, by the way, another article on the almost the exact same thing, uh, funnily enough. This one comes from Sam Bush, who's writing over on Mockingbird, and he writes an article entitled, A Bright Light in a World of Grey. And he he's talking everywhere about the certainty of the gospel, and then he has these two just goldmine paragraphs. He writes this, quote, The gospel is news, not a philosophy. It is a fact rather than a point of debate. It is a person rather than an idea, a miraculous incursion of normalcy amid the chaos of life. Jesus is not a key that unlocks the door to enlightenment. He is the door. He is your justification. He is a mere, he is not a mere idea, but the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Ideas do not have the power to save us from sin and death. Ideas can be forgotten, ignored, misused, and misunderstood, fading into the gray of every other thought we come along. The gospel is the sort of ministry, he continues, that retains its power regardless of our comprehension. It is not a passing fad or a movement that will wane over time. It can withstand being talked about till you're blue in the face. You may lose interest over time, but its truth will never be diminished. <laughs> End quote. Talk about a rock of truth. 
The gospel is news about what Jesus has done, about what Jesus has accomplished. It is a fact that we preach the gospel every single Sunday. This is why I feel obliged to announce that fact every time I get into the, the pulpit. I, because why I don't preach the potential of salvation. I preach, preach the announcement of salvation that has already been accomplished on your behalf. And it's there as a gift handed to you in the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Preaching the good news of Jesus being made sin in the sinner's stead isn't a hypothetical. It's a fact of history. It's already occurred. He's already died your death and taken your sin on his shoulders. And such is why the pastor, the position of a pastor is like a, a, a newsie. He's a newsboy shouting in the town center, extra, extra, read all about it. I have forgiveness for you. And it doesn't come from me, it comes from Jesus. It doesn't come from my wisdom, my eloquence, or anything like that. It comes from the Spirit of God, which points to the Son of God. I'm so passionate about this, because this is the message that we need to hear. This is the message that is that the, that the church is called to proclaim. The fact of the gospel, the certainty of God's truth, the raw, solid rock gospel of Christ made sin for your forgiveness from sin. This, by the way, to connect it back to Stephen King, is exactly what he gets at in one of his lectures. If you, if you don't read any lecture of Stephen King out of that book, Lectures on the Law and the Gospel, read this one. It's called The Object of the Gospel. It is so incredibly moving. And he talks about this specific fact, namely that the gospel is a fact. That's the whole point of it, <laughs> and that's the reason why you can be so adamant about it, why you can be so, so forceful with this language, why you can be so confident in what you're proclaiming, because it's not a potent, divine potentiality. It is a declarative tr- truth that Jesus has taken your sin, and it is only the unfaith of rejecting, and, uh, rejecting that gift that is denied entrance into heaven. This is getting into some other territory that is probably too much for this particular podcast, but the sermon that has no forgiveness is the rejection of God's forgiveness. It's, it's thumbing your nose at the fact that Jesus has already done what you could never do for yourself. This is what we declare. This is what we preach. This is what preachers must everywhere proclaim. And that's what my mission is. My mission I'm, I, I'm sola fide till death. Faith alone, uh, by, uh, that, that's, that's my mandate. That's, that's my message. That's my tune. And I'm not changing my tune. <laughs> no matter what else gives way, I know something that doesn't. Jesus made sin. Christ for you. That's the gospel. That's the church's message. And that's my message too. Thanks so much for listening. This has been the Ministry Minded Podcast. 
uh, specifically Pastor Brad's Corner. I'm so glad that you that you came, that you pressed play, that you were able to listen. I hope that you've been blessed by this particular episode. Uh, if you're not already, go subscribe to the Ministry Reminded Podcast. You can do so on Apple, Spotify, Google, all the all the ones that you're familiar with probably. Um, I appreciate you so much. I uh, appreciate you dearly. Thanks for your prayers. Uh, and I thank you so much for uh, listening uh, as always. So I'll see you on the next episode. Blessings. Yeah.